the Channel Tunnel runs underneath the English Channel, which sounds almost unbelievable. But today, we will talk about how this engineering marvel was plotted, designed, and constructed. You'll hear how the tunnelers faced death, some died, even early passengers faced their worst fear, a fire inside the tunnel, next on Technically a Conversation. Greetings, super friends. Welcome to another episode of Technically a Conversation. Here, we like to share an interesting topic with each other, which we've recently learned and hope you find it interesting too. I'm one of your hosts, Isela. Joining me as always is the comic-loving Jose. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Good. Can't complain. How was your May the 4th? Sadly, it was uneventful. I didn't really do anything. What about you? It was good. It was, you know, kind of wrapping up this script hastily, but, you know, very calmly at the same time because I wanted to capture all the nuances. But it was still kind of fun watching everybody's memes float around. Yeah, and I've barely been on social media, so I'm still catching up on some of the May the 4th posts. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> In honor of yesterday, May the 4th, I'm drinking out of my R2-D2 mug. I know you saw it, but I'm going to lift the, the lid so you can hear it talk to us. See. Oh. It's cool. Hopefully you can hear it. It's super fun. Anyway, brief quick reminder. We still have a great opportunity for anybody to win your very own Smoldering Hot Technically a Conversation t-shirt. What should they do to enter the contest, Jose? It's very easy. Just leave us a review. Send us a screenshot to one of our socials. We're at Greetings TAC everywhere. We'll read it on the show. And once we get 25 reviews... We'll do a drawing and give the winner a sexy Technically a Conversation t-shirt. So check out technicallyaconversation.com or the show notes for all the deets. Yes. And thank you to everybody who has submitted a review, everyone listening. And good luck to those who will submit as well. May the odds be in your favor. <laughs> I don't know why I got very Hunger Games. <laughs> you want to jump on into our shout outs? Yes, we've got four shout-outs this week. We've got one half of the queens, Elena. Yeah. The Duke, Stephen B. Yeah, y'all. Max F and GGA. Yes, thank you, guys. Max, I appreciate that you were allowing us to keep you company on your road trip back home. And Gigi, thank you for listening and welcome to our podcast. Hopefully you will stay our super friend. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start this off with a quick story. When my little sister graduated from medical school, shout out Dr. Brenda, making a difference in a busy New York City hospital. <laughs> <laughs> yes, awesome. That is definitely what that deserves. We went all over her, the city in Boston when she was graduating. And there was one structure that I remember I kept thinking, how the heck was this made? It's the Bunker Hill Bridge. It's that famous one. It was in both of the... Denzel Washington movies of Equalizer. And I often have this thought when I look at certain structures. So even like the Flatiron Building, even pictures of the Taj Mahal. I think, God, how are these even made? Do you ever think that when you look at anything like that? Mm, not necessarily. I do get fascinated watching architecture. 
And I guess I'm more fascinated by very old things like the pyramids and stuff like that, where they didn't have the same type of technology that we have now. I guess I kind of take for granted how much technology has evolved to where I don't really give it a second thought now. I can see that. No, you're right. But pyramids are fascinating. I don't think they know how they were built still specifically. I mean, they have ideas, right? Yeah, they don't know 100%, but they've got some good theories. Yeah, it is pretty fascinating. I, I would agree with on that one for sure, too. Well, today, we're not going to talk about specifically that one or any of the ones that I <laughs> mentioned, but we are going to talk about an engineering feat in general. And it's a tunnel that goes underneath the water of the English Channel. So that alone sounds damn near impossible. It's called the Channel Tunnel, a.k.a. the Chunnel. <laughs> it connects two countries, Britain and France. Have you heard of this tunnel? I have, actually. Oh, isn't it kind of fascinating just to think how this is made? Like, what the hell? Underneath this body of water? That's insane. Yeah, I take back my previous statement because, yeah, that is very fascinating. Right. Okay. Good. I'm glad that you're on board. The shore. <laughs> so imagine being on the shoreline, looking to the other country. It's 21 miles of water. Who has that loony, albeit genius idea of, hey, let's go underneath all this water and build a tunnel. And not just any tunnel, mind you. It is the world's longest underwater tunnel. How the heck was that made? Today, we're going to find out. This is so daring. It's so brave. But humans are daring. We are brave. After all, a woman swam the English Channel four times nonstop. Big props to American Sarah Thomas, who was brave enough and in shape over the age of 35, by the way, to do that. But this is what humans do. We dare to do big things. We'll also talk about other human inherent characteristics like our competitive nature, and above all, our will to survive towards the end. It's going to be an exciting one, guys. Lots to cover here. So let's dive in. You ready? Got my bathing suit on, ready to go. Ooh, bathing suit, because we're talking about water. Yeah. I already have one <laughs> foot in the English channel. What? Yeah. <laughs> awesome. The idea of the tunnel was actually not new. Napoleon himself thought this idea up. But of course, back in the day when he thought the idea up, he wanted it to be wide enough for horse-drawn carriages to travel back and forth. Very crazy, <laughs> but okay, cool. As I mentioned, the channel is 21 miles across. The documentary I watched stated that this is twice as wide as the Grand Canyon, just to kind of give you context. Connecting Britain and France has great benefits, of course, right? So it's good for trade. It's good for tourism. Although, let's not forget that Hundred Year War, which was ironically 116 years between them about land. So there's a little bit of bad blood that we had to overcome. But, you know, let's find out how they fared. France makes amazing bread, though. So it would totally be worth it just for the bread. I agree. The Okay, here's the weird thing is I don't like bread that much. But you put bread with a little bit of, um, what is it, the balsamic and olive oil? <gasps> oh, my God, forget it. I'm just... I'll, I'll eat bread all day long. <laughs> you know, I was listening to um, a podcast with Paul Therat earlier today. It was on Windows Weekly. And he's actually buying a house in Mexico. Interesting. Yeah, I thought it was kind of strange. But anyway, he said that when they were there, they found a little place that sold tortas. 
And his wife was like, you know what? We should go and get a torta. And then Paul was like, I'm not coming to Mexico to get a fucking sandwich. Why would I get a sandwich in Mexico? <laughs> Until he tried it and he said, oh my God, it was the <laughs> best sandwich I've ever had in my whole entire life. That's so interesting. I'm so glad he came to the dark side and he overcame that whatever stereotype he had. Tortas are the bomb, guys. In case you guys have not tried it, hell yeah. And the bread that they use for tortas, that's actually French bread from when the French were occupying Mexico. Is that true? I didn't know that. Yeah. That's really exciting. As a vegetarian, they still, they do make something for us. It's just basically uh, avocado. Mm. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Your face was not very happy. I know. Milanesa was my favorite. Oh my God. It's just like a breaded meat thing. I don't know what you call it, but it's like breaded beef. I don't know. Yeah. It's like the Mexican chicken fried steak, I guess you would say. Oh yeah. It's a very perfect example or analogy, I should say. And it's not that I don't like avocado. I love it, but I'm allergic to it. Oh, yeah. Avocado <laughs> hurts me, so I can't eat it. I don't know why I forgot that for a second. You're right. <sighs> but yeah, the bread, they're called francesitos, French bread. Oh my God. I'd never put that together. I'm sometimes not very smart, <laughs> as you can tell. <laughs> no, 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 it's not that at all. I didn't put that together until I heard Paul Therat talking about it. And I was like, this all makes sense. So shout out Paul Therat. Yeah, this is really interesting. I love that we're both sharing fun facts. This is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to our channel, two leaders back in 1986, Thatcher and Mitterrand, the French leader. Mitterrand. <laughs> Mitterrand. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine him with like a cigarette or something. And then a baguette in the other. I'm just kidding. And a little pencil, like mustache, <laughs> yeah. with a beret. <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> We're gonna get canceled just for this. Yeah, sorry, no disrespect meant. I know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Thatcher and Mitterrand agreed to greenlight the project, but it had to be entirely privately funded. My guess is because the sales pitch sounds way too crazy. Can you imagine that? Like ring, ring. Hello, sir. <laughs> Boy, do I have an investment opportunity for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's insane. The budget, 1.3 billion pounds. That's huge. In dollars, 1.6 billion dollars. Freaking huge. They started digging in December 1987. Both sides started digging. What's the most natural thing to do when one side is doing the same thing as the other side? Meet halfway. Yes. And we want to make it a race. It's very, I'm going to make it to the middle first. <laughs> right. Humans, we're funny like that. We'd like to make everything a competition. Brits had some tunneling experience under their belt, so they called themselves the Tunneling Tigers. This was very endearing to me. I don't know why they called themselves Tunneling Tigers, but they did. I'm here for it. The French were the underdogs. If you like to root for that side, this is who you would be rooting for. No one really had experienced, but they were certainly trained for the project, and both sides charged full speed ahead. What did this project really entail? We know it's a tunnel. What else are we really truly talking about? But both sides have to come and go. All right, now we're talking about two main tunnels. Let's not forget, we also have to dig a service tunnel just in case something happens. They have to get it serviced every once in a while, right? Okay, now we're talking three tunnels. <laughs> and all three tunnels have to be twice as long under the water that's ever been built before. To give you a visual context of how big and wide it has to be, 
four-lane highway. That's pretty damn big in the words of every infomercial on television. But wait, there's more. (laughs) They also had to think about emergencies, specifically how to escape the main railway if something should happen, let's say like a fire or something really awful like that, which means throw in another 245 escape tunnels, which connect the main railways to each other. And then when trains are speeding through the tunnel, of course, they have to alleviate the air pressure. So they created vents also, which allowed airflow back and forth between the main uh, railways. Lastly, they also had to make one huge crossover pathway, which gives trains that chance to divert their path when maintenance is being done on the other side. In total, it's 153 kilometers of tunnel, which is 95 miles. This is huge. This is huge. That's insane for only 21 miles? Right. Because you're thinking going and coming and all this. It is a lot. I couldn't even imagine working on this project as a tunneler, even with 100 meters of seawater above me. I should know I'm not claustrophobic at all, but the idea really does kind of freak me out. These workers were really brave. And why was a bridge ruled out? Why was a bridge ruled out? Because they wanted to save time. (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah. Here's the fun part. How in the wide world of sports was this actually constructed? Do you want to take a guess at all? You know, that is an excellent question. I imagine a bunch of people in scuba gear, but I'm sure they had a more elegant way of doing it. Yes, So full disclosure, this is how I got the idea of the episode. I was talking on the phone with one of my buddies and we were throwing ideas of how we thought this was being constructed. We're like, maybe, you know, they did this and maybe they did that. So it was, it was fun even just thinking about it. I'll tell you, there are these ginormous tunnel boring machines and they're called TBMs for short and not at all boring. Okay. That was actually pretty sad. You can cut that one out. (laughs) (laughs) Picture a round tube-shaped machine where the front part of the tube, it spins, and it's 200 meters in length. It's about two football fields, which is really, these are huge. They're giant. They weigh 1,100 tons, and when it rotates, that's the part that's digging through all the rock, and it crushes all the, whatever's in front of it. The outer part of the tube is a part that starts to reinforce the tunnel lining. So that's the basic idea. Now for specifics. With each rotation of the blade, it carves out a whopping 10 tons of rock with every single rotation. 12 TBMs were going 24 hours a day, seven days a week on the French side. The biggest ones cost 10 million pounds each. Being that these were specifically designed for this project alone, At the end of this project, they were just going to be trashed. (laughs) That's insane. Let's review the Brit side. They had the faster machines also going daily, and it was pulling out 36,000 tons of rock a day. French machines, albeit they were slower, but their cutting heads were protected and waterproof. So that meant if they happened to hit a little bit of water, it was totally okay, and they can continue going. So pretty efficient still. At the start of the race, all was going good for the Brits. They would probably say it was going smashing. (laughs) I think that's what the term they would use. Mostly because everything was nice and dry. Hundreds of concrete slabs were being moved in line to tunnel the roof. 
This is not just regular old concrete that you'll find in your sidewalk. This was specifically formulated, made with granite, and it's stronger than what's used to build nuclear reactors, which also means it's heavier. The TBMs have arms that push those slabs of concrete and they put them against the wall of the tunnel and they kind of put them in place. Now, the tricky thing is these machines were constantly pushing forward. Therefore, these slabs had to constantly be loaded. So any slowdown was really not an option because it was going to be way too costly. Brits had the lead tunneling farther at the beginning because they had the faster machines. Both sides had to remain extremely precise because they're hoping to meet in the middle. If any side veers off course, they would have to dig extra to correct the path and meet with the exactness needed for this project. What is the real wiggle room that they had? They couldn't be off target by more than two and a half meters. That's, that's not a lot of wiggle room. <laughs> no, especially since they were moving over like a hundred and some tunnels along with them. How many tunnels was it again? It's technically two main tunnels, but it's two main ones and then that third service one. So that's where it starts like adding up. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Even scarier, if they went off course, they could hit water. And that means that could create flooding. This is where tunnelers could really face death. So how did they really plot the path along where to dig? Let's go back a year and a half before they actually started tunneling. The surveyor had probably one of the most difficult tasks because they had to plot the course in all three dimensions. So it's not like doing a regular road where a surveyor would normally do that type of project. What they did was they knew that there was a special layer of blue chalk rock to follow and tunnel through. Let me tell you how, because this is really exciting. They dug 12 holes into the seabed. They dropped these probes down these holes, it emitted sound waves. And with the sound waves, they measured the rate of speed that was being traveled through all the varying types of rock and soil to find the blue chalk. Isn't that wild and cool? That's super crazy. So they were literally digging underneath the ocean. Yes, under the seabed. How many thousands of feet were they under the water or hundreds of feet? Well, they were a hundred meter, a hundred meters underneath the water. Wow. Okay. It's, it's a lot. I know. It's mind-boggling, right? Yeah, I was always under the impression that they had built tunnels and the tunnels were in the water. I didn't realize that they were actually underneath the ocean itself. I think that would be really wild because of all the currents and stuff like that. Yeah. But yeah, that would, that would be really wild. <laughs> <laughs> so the TBMs had to stay on course of this layer of rock that they plotted out. How did they stay on course? They followed it with laser guidance. They had to shine this laser back to the starting point. Then it would shoot back to the front to see how level everything was going. And the driver had almost like a, a target in front that they could see. So when it would shoot back and come back, it would show up on the target, how on target they were. So the driver could either veer off to the right a little bit, veer off to the left, whatever it is, just to keep on course. I mean, this machine sounds brilliant. I don't know how else to put it. That's pretty badass. <laughs> right? Another challenge is the further in you tunnel, the hotter it gets. So these poor tunnelers had to start carrying respirators. That's really uncomfortable. The more I learned, 
the more respect I had for these workers. I think this is a good time. We can take a quick note from our sponsor. And then when we return, we'll find out how the Brits hit a life-threatening issue while they were tunneling. Hi, this is Dakota, host of ContraZoom Pod, where we go back and forth about film. I am obsessed with movies. I could talk about them all day. If you're like me, then you'll love my podcast. Every week we take a new topic, whether it's ranking a director's filmography, covering major film festivals, or getting way into Oscar season. While every week is different, we do have some recurring topics, like our Make Remake series looking at an original film and its remake, or our very popular A History Of program, taking an in-depth look, looking at some of the biggest companies involved in film, including Criterion, A24, and Neon. It isn't all super serious topics, though, as we always need to play catch-up with all the hottest Marvel Cinematic Universe news and general pop culture goings-on. There's something for every kind of movie lover, whether you want reviews, interviews, or in-depth conversations. ContraZoom Pod is found on all podcatcher apps, and visit ContraZoomPod.com for even more information. Oh, hey there. I'm Holly. And I'm Sarah. And we're the hosts of Cover Your Eyes Podcast. We revisit the 80s and 90s movies of our childhoods and wonder, why the hell were we allowed to watch this? Is it too late now? Is the damage done? Join us and find out as we laugh our way through the trauma and take a lighthearted look at how these movies shaped our views on society, relationships, and sex. Open your minds and cover your eyes every Tuesday, wherever you listen to podcasts. All right. Welcome back. How was your break? Good. Just watching you pantomime the commercials. That was very <laughs> enjoyable. I'm so silly. Damn it. Thank you for revealing all my goofiness. Oh, I loved it. I loved it. I was being silly. So before we left off, we left off on a very exciting cliffhanger note. We're going to dive right back in. March 1988 now, just as the Brits were winning the race, the service tunnel on the Brit side hit water. What? Thousands of gallons just gushing into the tunnel. There was massive panic, but this was a time for cool heads. They had to determine if this was just a weird pocket of fresh water or was it seawater? Of course, the seawater would be the worst of the two. They tasted the water. Sure as heck. Salty as all hell. It was seawater. <laughs> this is, again, like I said, the worst of the worst. So... I don't know if I want to say the worst of the worst because that's going to happen later. This is the worst of the two because the water pressure alone would kill everybody. Even worse, if there's a crack in the tunnel, roof is pouring in, like it's really bad. And that's exactly what happened. Rocks started falling from the roof. It was a nightmare scenario. That's awful. Yeah. I would be so panicked shitting I mean, you don't even get cell phone reception to be like, Mama, I, I always loved you or whatever. <laughs> the chief engineer had to figure out a way to plug the leaks if he wanted to save everyone's life. I mean, this is the dire straits they were in. After closely reviewing the layer of blue chalk rock, the pathway that they had drawn through, they saw there was a bunch of fault lines and cracks, which is where the water was leaking through. Thankfully, the men worked really diligently. They plugged the leaks. These concrete liners were replaced with entirely something new. They weren't going to fuck around. 
they were replaced with cast iron liners in some areas. Thankfully, catastrophe was avoided. They were still dealing with the leftover damage, though. The water had come in and short-circuited the entire electrical system of the the TBMs, right? The, The tunnel boring machines, which is only eating up more of their budget because they can't go anywhere. They couldn't just put them in rice, like when you drop your cell phone in the toilet? (laughs) A shit ton of rice. (laughs) That'd be awesome. (laughs) At this point, they're clearly spending well over their budget because they've been stopped. All this cast iron business that they had no idea that they were going to have to do. Let's check in on the French side, how they're faring. They also were hitting water, but they were okay. Because one, they were warned about the what was going on on the Brit side. And remember, their equipment was completely waterproof, so it could withstand all the water that they would encounter. They were just chugging along. No issues there. Throwing a couple of packs of silica gel to pick up the water. (laughs) (laughs) Who would have known it was going to be that easy? (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Um, So now they actually had the advantage. After nine grueling months, the Brit side hit dry ground, and it's time to kick it in high gear again to, well, really regain all the time that they had lost. They were moving so fast that they were starting to run out of the concrete slabs to make the tunnel lining. This kicked up the production of the concrete slabs, which is great. That part was uh, solved. Now let's go to January 1990, two years after all the digging. Competition's back on point. Everyone's excited racing to the middle point, and now with the faster production of the concrete slabs, now there's another problem. Space was so limited on the shoreline because they did want to keep those concrete slabs close to the entrance of the tunnel just to minimize the waste in the time. So how did they fix this storage problem? By making another tunnel. Yeah, why not? (laughs) Why not? With the very simple yet genius idea of using the 36,000 tons of rock to extend the shoreline. So since they were keeping it on the shoreline, they're like, well, let's just make the shoreline bigger with all this damn rock. And they dumped all the rock into the sea and Britain grew by 90 acres. Wow. Dude, fascinating. Just one American football field is about 1.3 acres. If they could have kept that up, they would have just been able to build a land bridge to Britain to, to France. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Right. Let's see how much they had to dig for that. <laughs> this is also how Boston, Massachusetts was extended, by the way. That's a little fun fact. Paul Therott, I think, is from Boston, Massachusetts. No, is he really? Yeah. Look at that. How well these things are falling into place. Weird coincidences. Because I know he likes the, what are they called? The uh, Boston Patriots or whatever? Yeah, New England Patriots. Yeah, he's a fan of those. Ah, those. <laughs> those. That's pretty funny. Well, I usually tune out whenever he starts talking about football or sports or whatever. But yeah, I've heard him talk about the Boston Patriots a few times. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Doing same thing. Sure. <laughs> Fast forward another year of digging. Brits reach the middle point. French are close by too. Boom. Somebody gets a waft of French air and the diggers are through the other side. Everyone's clapping and cheering. They finally made it. Here's the fun question. How on or off target were they? I want to say they were spot on. I'm going to say yes, you're right. Because they were only off 
by 35 centimeters. That's pretty good. That's incredible precision. As agreed, the Brits, uh, the TBM, dug their machine underground, and that was the weirdest or coolest graveyard. I don't know. I can't decide. (laughs) (laughs) In the following months, the tunnelers dug out, you know, all the other little main railways to each other, like I had mentioned, the 245 linking ones and all this really cool stuff. All in all, May 1991, all tunnels were dug and completed. It's very important to note, 11 people died. Really awful. All the people who had died were all on the British side during the construction of this massive project. And they were really awful deaths too. I'm only going to tell you about a few. One was hit by a speeding train. Oh, man. I know. And three of them were crushed to death by the tunnel boring machines. It sounds really awful. Anyway, an LA Times article only talked about those four. So I didn't really want to look further because it kind of bumped me out, to be perfectly honest. (laughs) After the midpoint was reached, mostly everyone was thrilled and cheery, except the private financers, because the budget had gone up from $1.3 billion, now well over $2 billion. Not to minimize this project at all, but I share in their pain every time I take my car in to be serviced. My expectation is like, I'm going to pay some nominal amount for an oil change. But then they're like, oh, yeah, your serpentine belt needs to be changed. And you should change your transmission fluid every 60,000 miles. Now I'm paying five times as much as what I originally paid. So I get it, financers. Transportation is not cheap. I always just expect to pay an exorbitant amount whenever I take it in. It's like, oh, you need to get new carburetor fluid. All right, how much is that going to be? About a thousand, two thousand? What are we looking at? Oh my God, that's a lot for carburetor fluid. I would have really not. Jeez Louise. Yeah, I also don't know anything about cars, so I think they might be taking advantage of me too. I feel like that too. It's that famous Dane Cook joke where he's like, there's tiny little unicorns shitting in your engine and we got to clean that out. And you're like, really? All right, I guess that's got to get done, right? (laughs) Yeah, what are we looking at? Two thousand, three thousand? Right, that's your typical (laughs) answer. (laughs) That's funny. So cool, the tunneling part was done. On deck is the next team to build all the train stations, the railway tracks. They got to build the cooling system. The trains had to be specially built to carry vehicles that were going to be loaded onto the train. To say that this is a huge project feels like a serious understatement. Fast forward to May 6, 1994, 28 years ago. Bam, 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 bam. It was finally open for everyone. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> yes, dude. Can you believe that? And here's the great part. By everyone, I mean just trucks. Mm. <laughs> it wasn't until six months after that that it was taking people across back and forth. The old way, since you had asked, was by ferry. It took about an hour and 15 minutes with the tunnel. Bam! You're there in 35 minutes. Even with the ferry, that's not too bad. I bet that's kind of nice, too. I don't know. I don't know how choppy the water is. <laughs> yeah, no, I have no idea, but I think it would be kind of nice. Unless it's your morning commute, then, yeah, you want to get there as soon as possible. Yeah, yeah, that would really suck. But even with this time saver, people were fearful to get on. Again, I can't really blame them a bit. A year later, still not enough business, and now they're really facing hard times financially. And you know how it goes. Just when you think things could not get worse, what happens? Things get better. They get worse. Oh. Oh. (laughs) I wish. 
This is the exciting part. <laughs> November 18th, 1996, on the French side of the tunnel, 9.48 p.m. Now prepare yourselves, everyone. You know some bad shit's about to go down when people note the time down to the minute. Already got my depends on, just in case. Great. You're going to need them. <laughs> <laughs> There's a train speeding through, entering the tunnel, heading towards England, and the cameras catch that a truck that's loaded on the train is on fire. All they see is smoke, and it was reported, uh, and, but by the time it was reported, I should say, it was several kilometers in, and there's 31 passengers on board. I have to tell you that when I was watching this part of the documentary, I was very dry eyed because I don't think I blinked. <laughs> <laughs> the smoke had started to come into where the passengers were. At 9.51, the driver is given his first advice. Here's the advice in summed up words. Go, boo, go. Your high speed is cooling the flames. Just keep going. What? Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> and... It was all in French, right? So it was probably something like, Allez-vous, mon ami, or mon beau. <laughs> the train was only 15 minutes away from reaching the other side. So as wacky as that advice sounds, I can kind of see the logic. Six minutes later, 9.57, there's a warning light going off the dashboard, notifying the driver that a wagon fitting has come loose. Like, no manches, can they get a break? Clearly, they don't want to derail because that would also be deadly. They had to stop, of course. This now allows the fire to grow significantly to the point where it starts to burn through all the power. There's no emergency lights anymore. The black smoke is entirely inside the passenger wagon. Everyone's on the floor choking from the smoke inhalation to the point where some people were almost vomiting as well. Pretty gross picture to paint. The train has stopped 19 kilometers into the tunnel. This means their only option really is to find the service tunnel, which is luckily only a few meters away, but they have to find it first. And they also have to find the cross path, but they can't see shit because of all the smoke. So they're just straight up in the most horrendous situation. 10.02 p.m., the controller saw a hotspot on the rail path. Naturally, they rush the firefighters in. They're like, sweet, we know where it is, you know, like the train that's lit. And I mean lit in the literal sense, not in the colloquial sense, right? They send the firefighters in. It takes 15 minutes just to get there. And the fire is growing. By this time, steel wheels on this train have now melted on the rails. I'm talking legit nightmare scenario. <laughs> My brother's a lieutenant in the El Paso Fire Department, so I interviewed him briefly about how dangerous even the 15-minute wait is, and he told me this mic drop of a fact. A fire can double in size every 30 seconds. Imagine what was going on in 15 minutes. That's crazy. <laughs> it's really intense. You would think that they would have at least sprinklers or something. I mean, they could get the water from the ocean. I, You would think, well, or I don't know, but then how... I don't know. That's a really good idea. You should have been on this project. <laughs> It'll create a, a nice little sauna for everybody in there. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> At this point, it's 1020 PM when the firefighters arrive to the door that was indicating all the heat. They open the door. Boom. Wrong door. Do ching out. This is like Murphy's Law. By this point in the documentary, 
I'm pretty sure I had chewed off all my nails. They were down to a nub. It was really sad. It was bad news bears there. The conductor saw a small glimpse of clean air, meaning like smoke was escaping the train, indicating there has to be a way out there, but they had to go towards the flames. These poor passengers were aimlessly meandering through this insane heat, flames, smoke. I'm pretty sure this is also known as hell. They finally reached the door to an open cross path. And at 1024, they find the firefighters 40 minutes after the fire was reported. One of the passengers who recalled the dreadful event said that he really did feel that they came within minutes of facing death. Although many changes were made to increase response time and just improvements to emergencies in general were made. Needless to say, this was not really great for getting more people to ride. Within time, though, it did eventually catch on and people were finally on board. Aha, <laughs> funds. <laughs> According to Statista.com, from 2013 to 2019, about 20 million people ride this tunnel every year. That concludes our very dramatic history lesson. Thank you for taking this emotional ride with me. <laughs> I only had to change my diapers once. Dude, it's kind of scary, right? Yeah, although I would want to get on that train. Well, not the one that was on fire, but I would want to get on a train to ride through that. I think that sounds like so much fun. It's pretty daring of you. I, I'll i take a couple of water bottles just in case. Right, yeah, yeah. Just you gotta, oh, you gotta prepare. Dude, I think I would I would need like a real CBD gummy or I don't know, some kind of, <laughs> some kind of laughing gas. Give me something. But I think I would have a little bit of a hard time. 35 minutes is not a big deal, but... I feel like that would be a long 35 minutes for me. How many other times has a train caught on fire while inside the tunnel? No, thankfully, just the one time. Okay. Yeah, I think I would be okay with that. If it was something that happened weekly or if it was like the Amtrak derailments that at least a couple of times a year you hear about one, I'd be a little bit more scared. Yes, true. (laughs) That's pretty sad. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you're right. Actually, I probably shouldn't say that (laughs) because that could be kind of sensitive. That's not good insight. Yeah. Any kind of... (laughs) encouragement. Well, congratulations, lovelies. You have done it again. You've learned along with us today a little bit about engineering, a little bit of history, and mostly how people can do amazing things, especially with the will to survive. We hope you've been entertained by our chat and invite you to join us again next week. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review, tell a friend, subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast now. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter at Greetings TAC. Email us at greetings TAC at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 915-317-6669 if you have a story to share with us. I'm going off the rails on a crazy train. That's a great song. Oh man. <laughs> that is a great song. Everybody needs to check that out. <laughs>